Yo, technology is wild. Yeah, it is. It's gotten so good <laughs> just in the last 10 years. Except like, it's also awful compared to like how great it could be considering how <laughs> much technology there is. Like um my I I live with my girlfriend and her mom and our Wi-Fi's been acting up really bad. We don't really uh, live in a rural area, but we live in upstate New York. So, like, Spectrum dominates up here, and, you know, our internet is few and far between. And they were complaining about the hit, the internet, and I was like, you do understand, like, there is absolutely nothing stopping other than, you know, the the lack of capital to be gained. But there's absolutely nothing stopping Spectrum from making it so that every single household or every single building in upstate New York and everywhere in the United States had like the best, most high speed internet, but they just choose not to cause it's not profitable. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not like profitable on the, the individual market scale, like plenty of countries, like not even socialist countries like fucking Estonia has mm-hmm. like nationalized internet where it just comes out of your taxes and as an Estonian citizen, you can just ask the government for a dongle that you plug into your laptop and boom, you have high-speed internet anywhere in the country. Yeah, and I feel like also from like an American standpoint, that would be easier to manipulate and control, right? So why don't we have like super high-speed internet that we get directly <laughs> from the government? <laughs> I mean, it's, like it's it, really hard it, to say. Uh, there are so many countries who do it so well. Uh, I think maybe... It has, I mean, it has to do with what we're going to be talking about in the episode, which is just like Americans see national internet and they're like, that's what China has. And China's <laughs> bad. They're communist. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I love, um, I just did, uh, a podcast and a blog about the history of Fox news. Oh, and, man. uh, yeah. And so that was fun. Cause I didn't know that. So that, that was a trip, but, um, in reading it, it really brought to the forefront of my mind like how dumb my parents and most of my family sound when they're spouting off the shit that like Tucker Carlson said last week on the his show because like it is so insanely scripted in a way that almost seems like comedic. Yeah, well, it's um, it's a dog and pony show, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's all it's all theater. This uh, the the fake outrage and and the everything like that's why I at least got to give Alex Jones a little bit of props because he seems <laughs> like a dude who just gets on the mic and lets his brain do what his brain does and stuff just comes out of his mouth. And people like Stephen Crowder and Tucker Carlson would like you to think that that's what they're doing as well, uh, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's it's such a more like pre-thought out, focus grouped, workshopped kind of presentation of information. Yeah. Um, and the the best part about it is is most of like the Fox anchor people's like shtick is like, I'm just like you. I'm just I'm just a regular old, you know, patriot. But it's like <laughs> Tucker Carlson, did you know that Tucker Carlson owns one of the fact checking companies that Facebook uses? What? No, I didn't know that. That's outrageous. Yeah, I am not. I definitely heard it on a podcast, and I I think I so much as Googled it, um, and I found some some articles about it. But this was probably like two three months ago. Um, but I, I I mentioned that also to my uh, my friend Troy, who you know is the one that kind of inspired this episode. But like, um, I told him that, and he was like, he thought it was hysterical because. 
Fox Fox owns so much of the media that we consume. Yeah. All yeah. right. So let I guess let's get right into the episode. Um, okay. So uh, thanks for tuning in yet again to Annoying Question Boy, nobody's favorite podcast. I am here today with uh, John. I'm not even gonna attempt to say your last name from beep beep lettuce go ahead and say hi my friend (laughs) hi thank you so much for having me on uh it's a real pleasure to be here of course thanks for coming i uh when i when i reached out to you i was like there's no way that because to so like i said when we were talking before we started recording i'm fairly new to all of this especially podcasts like i only recently started listening to your guys's podcast like six months ago maybe oh wow um yeah and your guys's podcast was the first podcast i was introduced to um i was given chapo trap house's uh book uh before i started listening to podcasts but i didn't know that they were a podcast i thought they were just some group of writers uh (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh both both beep beep and chapo trap house book were uh things that my friend troy introduced me to um, but so when I reached out to you to, to me, like you're the BB Blytus is like the biggest podcast that I know of because it's the one that I listen to the most. So when I reached <laughs> out to you, it, it definitely felt like if I were to like call up, I, I don't know a good uh, analogy ce- celebrity, but someone that would be important to me that I wouldn't think would answer. So it's really cool to have you on the show. I'm very appreciative. Oh yeah. I'm so glad to be on here. You know? Uh, and that's the funny thing about podcasts is it's like, it's, it's a bit hard to tell how big a show is. I'm always worried that like, Oh, you know, my show is, is like really small and whatever I have to say, doesn't get out and reach a bunch of people. And then people ask me, they're like, your show has like thousands of people who listen to it. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I guess we do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like I just got 17 views on my last podcast and I'm like ready to call like the local news anchor and be like, dude, come on, I'm paying for a whole episode. We're just going to hype me up. I just, I'm so close to 20 views this week. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's awesome. Especially, you know, the best way to get started is, is to just get started and get in there. And, uh, it seems like you have a pretty good little format for your show. Um, I think people, I think people will enjoy it if they, if if they just got a chance to listen to it, you know, that's the, that's the hard thing is hooking people in. Yeah. And I feel like most of the topics that I cover, um, and I would assume you guys as well, considering the subject material isn't exactly the most enticing, uh, to get people to view it. I mean, getting other people who already kind of agree with some of the things that I'm going to say in this podcast is pretty easy getting them to listen to it. But like, you know, posting it on Instagram and expecting someone random to be like, Oh, let me listen to this episode about the history of Fox News. Like that's (laughs) very few people are are going to uh, just fall for that clickbait. Um, But again, thanks for coming on. So uh, I kind of wanted to do this episode talking about how not not only just like China U.S. relations, but how hard as an American citizen, sadly, it is to acquire any like. What seems like uh, substantial reporting or, you know, truthful reporting out of like what's happening in China with the many different uh, propaganda 
outlets that uh, American government has uh, extended its hands into, um, something like China definitely seems like something we would be openly uh, targeting as a uh, subject of propaganda. So um, to kind of start, I guess we could, like I said, just hop right into what's been happening recently. So I saw as recently as... I believe three, four days ago that, um, the U S is banning like a thousand, uh, Chinese students, um, visas. Yeah. Yeah. I saw the article, um, that you shared with me about that. And, uh, that's absolutely wild because the Chinese government is saying, I think quite rightly, like this is quite obviously just a case of simple discrimination, you know, uh, geared to stoke tensions between the US and China and uh I don't I don't think it's a stretch when when the CCP says that it very clearly violates the rights of of Chinese student Chinese students studying abroad in the United States um and it's just it's such a brazen move and it's the kind of move that you don't do unless you're like very deliberately trying to stoke tensions because to think that like somehow a thousand students from China are some big threat or some matter of national security is just, you know, outrageous right on its face. Right. That and on top of like the amount of spying that I'm sure the U.S. is actively (laughs) doing in China. Like that's the thing. I, I, I said this to my friend. Troy the other day I was like um it's very funny how everything that America uh like touts itself as being opposed to are things that if it hasn't done before it is currently and actively doing itself um so yeah, that, 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 that is yeah that is kind of a fun thing and then I saw another article uh, kind of along with this uh these acts of just deliberate discrimination by uh, the Trump administration and the U.S. government as a whole. Uh, I saw also that um, the CBP uh, confiscated something like 2,500 what they called uh, AirPod, uh, counterfeit AirPods out of a... uh, Yeah, out of a, a shipment that was going from Hong Kong to Nebraska. And the company that made the AirPods that uh, like were confiscated commented on the uh, the CBP's like Twitter thing, uh, the picture of the confiscated AirPods, and was like, "Hey, give those back!" Like like the actual company that made them commented on the post. So I Jesus. thought that it, yeah, I thought that it was one of the most like blatantly open very and very stupid might i say like of all the right. things uh, right now that the u.s government could you know be focusing on to be like and they would have to be searching through like hong kong's shipments in order to find something like that like they definitely were looking so you know amidst a global pandemic and what seems to be the like slow but sure collapse of the american empire we're concerned about you know Hong Kong uh, AirPods. Yeah, well, isn't it interesting that the the kind of topics that the United States always picks to blow up into some kind of big deal, or like the elements that that make it into the news, or they all have to do with trade, right? Mm-hmm. Because the the relationship with China and the United States 
has for a long time kind of comfortably in, in, in for the United States anyway, kind of comfortably been that like the, the China's not big enough uh, of a power to really challenge us. So we're going to, you know, exploit them, keep them under economic pressure, threaten other socialist nations, threaten them, you know, try and get our way over and over and over again. And for years, like decades, even China has really like been upping their game, been figuring out how to form economic partnerships with other countries and just slowly, but surely kind of no longer be under the United States thumb and start right. to kind of play as this like ascendant economic, you know, kind of center in the world and, and really get a chance to reshape and, and dictate global economic policy in basically the same way that the United States has done for a long time. And of course that's incredibly threatening to any interests, uh, you know, that you have here in the United States, all your three letter agencies, uh, you know, the regular federal government, your big corporations, uh, all of your concerned lobbying groups and stuff. So it's a, it's a really interesting issue. I think people have a, a lot of misconceptions about what modern day China looks like. You know, there's a, there's an anecdote from, they were interviewing somebody from Apple and they were like, you know, do, do you guys still operate mostly in China because the labor is so cheap over there? And the guy was like, you know, that's a really a misconception. Labor in China is about as expensive as it is in the United States. The reason that we manufacture in China is because in the United States, if you had a convention of like microprocessor specialists and like, you know, all of the shrunk down technology that we use in smartphones and stuff, you could fill a small convention hall. But if you had it in China, you could fill like a, a major league sports stadium. And right. That's the thing is that there's like, there's a brain trust in China, right? Like China has been focusing on practical <coughs> education, practical development and, and ways to like train people in applied technologies and engineering and all kinds of things in a way that the United States could never ever even dream of keeping up with. <laughs> the, the best part about that is like um, the, the fact that America is so like so insanely big in a way that I feel like most people don't understand, like militarily, like oh, yeah. we're so, we're so big that, you know, that I, I believe that it's true that the next nine largest uh, militaries combined don't even equal the size of the American uh, military. Yeah. We're uh, basically like half of the NATO armed forces. <laughs> so like the fact that the United States is, like, again, amidst a pandemic, so actively concerned about what a country like China is doing. Like, yeah, it's it's a threat in that it's, you know, starting to build some pretty strong ties in the global economy. And it has, like, uh, like you said, like, very, like, practical training that is building, you know, citizens that are going to continue to improve the society that is, you know, actively being improved right now. Right. Um. But like, again, for a lot of people, their understanding of why the U.S. hates China is because, um, well, at least in my area, I'm not sure if this is true of everywhere. I, again, live in upstate New York, so there's a lot of dumb people up here. From, from <laughs> my understanding, most people think that the United States hates China to some extent because the United States uh, outsourced jobs to China and now can't get them back. Or because, like, China is so terrifyingly huge that they think that we're going to go to war with them. And, I mean, again, 
China is starting to become a very, they're the second largest economy, I believe. Um, and they mm-hmm. are pr- pretty big militarily as well. But at the same time, like I just said, people do not really comprehend that there is not a single country that could uh, amass like a military conflict against the United States that we wouldn't have all the means in the world to like completely decimate. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of people, I think, on the American left, I hear this pretty frequently, where they're like, I mean, there's the, there's the more reasonable take, which is like, look, it, you know, if we're going to ha- build a socialist future in the United States, we're going to have to work with other socialist nations, and that includes China. I think that's totally reasonable. But there's a version of that where people are like, President Xi, please invade the East Coast and liberate <laughs> New Jersey from, you know, tyrannical Chris Christie rule. And it's like, that's just not going to happen No, uh, in that way. And, I, and I, it's to China's credit, right? That they know right. that that's a stupid way to go about it and that it would cause untold suffering and wouldn't get anybody what they want. It's, it's not just about the fact that the United States is that much larger than everybody else. We are, I mean, we kind of inflate the numbers, but like our our economy is like 50% bigger than China's on an annual basis. And then the third largest, uh, economy in the world after China is Japan, which is essentially a client state of the United States and then Germany and then India and then the United, you know, so there's not a lot of other socialist nations, on this global economic stage in Mm -hmm. the way that China is. So they have to really hold their cards close to their chest. And then every time they do that, the United States gets to be like, Oh, look at China trying to be shifty, trying to pull a fast (laughs) one on us. And it's like, we are the engineers of every fast one that's ever been pulled in like the last hundred years. Yep. So so it's really interesting. That not only are we the engineers of fast ones, but we're also the engineers of creating so-called fast ones to then, yep. you know, use as a means to go to war with someone. Oh, um, yeah. So so you you yourself describing China just right there, you called them socialists. And that was actually a question that I had for you. And a lot of my um, articles that I was reading, one of the ones that I read was the... Uh, China is a growing socialist country that um, my friend Troy sent me, and I believe I sent you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so when when you look at China, a lot of people who don't really have the whole scope, or people like me who are you know actively trying to find the whole scope but can't, um, I don't really understand. China's economy, like I know that they're a massive trade partner with the U.S. and they're building a lot of economic ties um, across, you know, a lot of different other large powers. But it also seems that a lot of my understanding of their economy is pretty capitalist, no? Well, it's hard to say in, I would say, you know, they're absolutely communist in a qualified sense, or they're absolutely capitalist also just in a differently qualified sense, because the issue is, is it's like, no matter how socialist your economics are within your country, if the scale of, if, if the format of global economics is still a capitalist one, then you still have to participate in capitalism to some degree to stake out your economic claim. So you know, the accusations of state capitalism, which is kind of a weird thing to throw as an accusation because that term really goes back to Lenin describing, you know, the the model of the USSR at that time. But w- what it really amounts to is like 
is China quote unquote actually socialist? I don't know. It's impossible for me to like make an educated statement about that. But I find that that argument, especially among like, you know, tendency sniping kind of leftists and stuff online and, and me as an anarchist, you know, I'm, I'm on the quote unquote side of the people who are most ready to attack China. It just comes off as kind of juvenile to me. It's like, don't you have bigger priorities? It's like everything we accuse China of we're doing like, Oh, they have a social credit system. They'll monitor your social credit. It's like we have, a credit score system in the United States. And we're one of the only countries in the world that does like, if you go to mm-hmm. any other developed country in the world, they'll be like credit score. What's a credit score. I needed a loan. I went to the bank. I got it. And it's just like, it's so outrageous. And then, you know, you want to talk about like the, the detention of, of Uyghur Muslims in, in Western China. Let's say that for the sake of argument, every claim about mistreatment of Uyghurs, in China is absolutely completely true. It still does not even hold a fucking candle does not even like make a ghost of a comparison to the atrocities committed by the United States just in the last couple of years alone, not to even go back decades or, you know, all the way back to shadow slavery or further. Right. Yeah. And I feel like because most of my um, leftist experience is very much online, I feel like a lot of my understandings of things like that, you know, argument, well, if if China's socialist, why does capitalism? Um, Yeah. Why is there a Gucci store in downtown (laughs) Beijing? And and it's like, well, even your your most favorite socialist countries and a lot of the time will have capitalist enterprises and stuff in them. For instance, like you can get KFC in Vietnam and North Korea operates a a fast food chain and a hotel chain that operate outside of the country just as a way to, you know, grow revenue for the party. And it's like, you know, there, there are definitely criticisms to be had of those kinds of things, but I think a lot of people want to criticize socialist countries in a vacuum and not like take the time to understand the conditions that they're facing and the condition what specific changes in their conditions they're trying to make. You know, if you're, if you're North Korean and you subscribe to Juche and you're there to support the party, it's all about self-determination and, you know, self-reliance. And, and if you're part of the Chinese communist party, then maybe you have a different attitude towards things. You're like, well, what's really important now from the material conditions of China is the rising star kind of, of the global economic order is to have this Belt and Road Initiative that invests a lot in underdeveloped countries and to form partnerships with these countries that will never see aid from, you know, the capitalist regimes in the United States and Japan and Germany and the UK and shit like that. Right. And I feel like because that is, what did you call it? Um, uh, the, The term you used to say, like, when people are just like, well, China does capitalism and just shoot that right out online. Yeah. I mean, people are ready to just have a take, you know, that's the thing. Like people are online, they're hungry to have a take. They're hungry to be heard and they, they want to be able to get uh 19,000 reply, 30,000 quote tweet tweet. And it's like, I don't know. I, and th- that's, that's why this kind of issue is like particularly interesting to me because like Early on, you know, this is maybe like three or four years ago when I was kind of re-examining anarchism and starting to take it really seriously, 
I was ready to jump out there and be like, you know what, actually, you know, yeah, the US is bad and Germany is bad, but China is bad too. Okay. And North Korea is also bad. Mm-hmm. And it took a lot of thoughtful conversations with a lot of people who were patient with me and, and showed me sources and stuff. And then it also took my actual willingness to change my opinion and admit to have, you know, admit to being wrong at some point, which is, you know, not to toot my own horn too much, but I think a lot of time that's rarer than actually oh, no, having the, the sources that you need. Mm-hmm, for certain. And I think, again, because so much of, and I, I'm sure that this is everywhere, but I've only experienced it in America, but I feel like a lot of American leftists um, experience their, you know, kind of uh, coming of age online and everything like that. So they sort of fall into, because of not only just algorithms, but also what they choose to uh, agree with, they kind of fall into a camp. You know, you, you got all this infighting online, which I'm, I'm to understand is not obviously something that would happen in real life because if, you know, the shit hit the fan tomorrow and, you know, the United States went into a revolution, I don't think we'd be walking around with signs around our chest that said, you know, uh, Marxist, Leninist, or uh, Trotskyist, <laughs> or anarchist, you know what I mean? Well, that's really the question is, it's like, are, are we tendencies sniping now because we're really concerned about the way that we're going to order power in a post-revolutionary society, which is where most of the disagreements between tendencies actually arise? Mm-hmm. Or are we doing it because we all grew up on message boards and forums and we want to have these cool little clubs to belong to while we exercise these kind of like pyrrhic rebellions against this, this power that we feel we're actually powerless to stop? And it's like... I hate to be the guy who's like, oh, get off your phone. Cause like I'm terminally on my phone. I'm extremely oh, online more than is. anybody. But like there's an element of that where it's like you have to wonder, you know, instead of telling this Marxist Leninist that they're a red fascist or telling this anarchity that they will never understand power dynamics and that they should read capital, like, isn't there something even marginally more productive that you could be doing with that energy? And more to the point, isn't there a part of yourself that you need to analyze that <laughs> and try to overcome that is just taking like, you know, totally justified outrage at a system and instead turning it into a way to shit on somebody who is essentially your ideological neighbor? <laughs> Don't you think that's a bit fucked up? Yeah, that and the fact that most of the time, a lot of our understanding about things uh, as online leftists, I'd say, is, is is pretty skewed by what, you know, what we decide to research and what we decide to just retweet. Um, yeah, so I think Absolutely. that. I think that a lot of this infighting stuff that I, uh, I'm i sure everyone who is in any sort of leftist sphere, uh, especially on Twitter, as I'm to understand it, but um, uh, to, to, to kind of talk about that, I, I brought that up because a lot of the arguments that I see on a lot of the uh, groups that I'm in on Facebook, um, a lot of the people that I follow on Twitter is this bantering back and forth about China. So like you said, there's kind of two camps um, in in leftist online culture. There's like, uh, you know, um, chair, uh, I, I don't know how to say, I, I really, really probably should have Googled some, some things how to say, pronounce <laughs> some names, but uh, 
what is their uh, their president's name, or what? What oh, should I? Yeah, President uh, <coughs> Xi Jinping. <laughs> yeah, um, like like come <coughs> save me, Daddy G. And then you know, there's uh, the other camp that is essentially just finding every single thing that the United States is also actively doing, uh, usually at a much higher scale and then pointing out how China can't be a communist country because they do, you know, uh, genocide and stuff like that, Um, which, which again, most people just choose to retweet and, you know, don't really research themselves. So I feel like for, for myself, this, this topic is interesting because a, a lot of my understanding of uh, leftist politics and a lot of history and stuff like that has come from, you know, either videos I can find on, on different, usually YouTube, surprisingly, or right. like reading, you know, historical things on online. And the fact that you can't really find many articles about China that you can like truly pull the bias out of and tell like what is and what isn't true is like very odd to me as someone who experiences most of his education online. Um, And I feel like most people feel the same way, right? Yeah. I mean, it can be really tough and it's like, you know, China has the great firewall and their internet is largely separate from ours. Mandarin and English don't really auto translate via Google's auto translate into one another very well. There's kind of a lot of uh, information that comes in different formats in each language and is, is a little tough to translate without an actual in-person translator. And there's any number of reasons why there's like an information barrier between China and the United States. But what that causes, especially when you have something as contentious as the largest socialist or even just non-capitalist or even just like essentially non-fascist nation in the world is that people in places like the United States get a lot of wild ideas about it. And even as you're growing into your socialist beliefs or you're learning or researching or however you want to think about it, uh, there's this tension that goes along with China that gets sustained, whether it gets repurposed into being a very fervent supporter of, you know, the CCP or whether it turns into you, even, even in your anti-capitalism, trying to find everything wrong with this one particular socialist country. And I think that there's uh, people just want to have an easy answer, right? Like mm-hmm. when they see something really terrible and difficult, they don't want to have something that they can really work at and sort out and like look at as an intellectual project. They want to have something they can quip. And it's really easy to quip like China isn't really socialist or like China is actually fascist. They just pretend to be socialist or like China is actually socialist and they are ushering in a wave of global communism. And it's like, you know, I don't think that the truth is somewhere magically in the middle of all those. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it's important to kind of just see China for what it is, which is that it's a very, very large country. It's the most populous nation in the world. Well, is India? I don't know if China or I India is I believe India populous. is the most populous nation. Um, okay. Uh, I, I'll, I'll hit a fat Google real quick. <laughs> um... No, it's China. India is trailing them. Oh, okay, by, interesting. India is trailing them by a hundred million. Step your game up. Oh, it, they'll 
I mean, they'll close that gap really fast. India's population has been growing like crazy. Oh, um, yes. Whereas China's uh, is much more reserved in its growth, I believe. Yeah, from my understanding. Um, and to kind of your point that I believe you were beginning to make, um, being that China is such a populous nation, it has so many different demographics, so many different regions, so many different, even down to just you know, societal differences between the same way that mm-hmm. in, you know, New York versus Florida, there's com- a completely different world. So I feel like a lot of our understanding of these things, like you said, we want to simplify them in order to kind of have something to just throw into a conversation or just a prepackaged understanding of a concept that we don't have to think about anymore. Um, and that kind of, uh, I, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but it kind of like brings to my attention something that I been thinking about myself, which is with with the conversation of obviously wanting a uh, uh, leftist movement in the United States, um, I'm starting to do a lot of research into things like, for example, California has been having a discussion for a while, apparently, for about seceding from the United States, or at least <laughs> yeah. has been brought up. Um, and do you think, I guess, just to ask the question I'm trying to ask um do you think that a a leftist government can really exist in the way that we as leftists would want it to in such a massive country such as china or the united states or somewhere analogous to that I mean, it's tough to say. It's going to take different forms in different places, which is a total cop-out of an answer. But to give you something (laughs) a little bit more... I mean, it's true. But to give you something a little bit more concrete, it's like, I think, you know, the two biggest communist revolutions that get talked about took place in enormous countries, right? Mm -hmm. Like Russia, which was eventually the USSR, is fucking huge. It's the largest land mass with national borders in the world. And then China is nothing to sneeze at either. It's bigger by population than it is by land mass relative to other countries. But still, it's pretty goddamn big on both counts. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, like, I don't know if in the United States we could capture the government the same way that they did in the USSR and in China because they weren't transitioning out of, you know, bourgeois developed, uh, you know, industrial capitalism. They were transitioning out of feudalism basically. Right. And that's the thing. Even to this day, China is still has wildly underdeveloped regions where they'll go in with a government program because that part of the list finally came up because the list was so damn long and they go in and they, they raise like hundreds of thousands of people out of extreme poverty. And that's the Mm -hmm. thing. Like a lot of people in China before the CCP was in power, were living in extreme poverty. So they're not just trying to raise people out of regular poverty. They're trying to get people from extreme poverty up to poverty and then get them everybody kind of up to, I guess like a quote unquote middle class as quickly as possible. Uh, and they're doing it. That's the other thing. Like for all yes. of the the lack of class mobility that we have in the United States, it's hard to imagine. But people in China, it's a land of opportunity. You know the way that it's structured right now. If you want to go out there and make a name for yourself, you absolutely can. There are programs galore. They abound. And so, you know, is it possible to do it like China is doing it in the United States? Yes. Do I think that's what's going to happen? 
I would be hard pressed to tell you what's going to happen. The country could crack into a hundred pieces. <laughs> it could crack into three. It could stay together. It could slide into hyper fascist. It could do a fucking million different things at this point. You know, I've said it before on other podcasts, but American Twitter leftists and stuff really want this to be 1917 Russia, oh, and it is not. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, it, that. That is the most uh, sought-after place that it, it, it seems there is on Twitter, according to my algorithm. Yeah, um, and for for all of you USSR history fetishists out there, this is much more like 1905 Russia, when the Tsar promised that he would set up a Duma and pass the October whatever, a big list of fucking promises that he never <laughs> followed through on. You know, And then how long did it take for a revolution that is easy to historically kind of fantasize about it took 12 fucking years Mm -hmm. so i'm not saying it'll take that long now i mean technology kind of speeds everything up but i think it'll take a while i don't think that like uh armed conflict is imminently around the corner we should be prepared in case it is but i don't think that it is right and i feel like again like you said like a lot of the revolutions that uh a lot of us like to fetishize and try to picture and project into the united states are ones that came in times of massive transition out of feudalism like you said we're in a very advanced late stage of uh i i don't even know what to call it we'll just call it capitalism to be simple but like we're certainly not from we're not on deck that's for sure for all you baseball fans out there (laughs) um we are certainly not on deck for a revolution which obviously is very upsetting but i think also what uh, a lot of leftists uh that i experience don't seem to understand is we wouldn't want a revolution right now we would we would get our asses eaten in a way that I can't even explain. Like we would not want a revolution right now. Well, we're woefully underprepared. Oh yeah. I mean, think about how many years Lenin spent in exile. Think about how many times Mao got uh, kicked out of the party before he eventually, you know, developed these programs that worked for millions and millions of Chinese people. Like it's, there are so many things that have to be done before you can really be ready for a revolution. It's not just like, you know, when the three percenters and the boog boys and the Ammon Bundy guys call the civil war, we're just going (laughs) to jump in there and hope we win. Like you have to figure out a way to set things up to happen on your terms. You have to have like big, you know, organized kind of groups and organizations that do not just like, you know, guns training and all, all of the, the glory war movie parts of battle, but you have to figure out how you're going to get food to people. You have to set mm-hmm. up medical logistics chains. You have to make sure that there's constant communication. You have to make sure that your communications are secure. You have to have technological specialists. You have to have logistics. Like there's so much that goes into mounting a revolution, even if it's not an all out armed conflict during a civil war. And then if you want to do that, it, it, there's like twice or three times as many things that you have to be ready with if you want to have a chance of succeeding. And I don't say this to discourage anybody. I say this to motivate them because like if you really want, you know, Americans have this like rise and grind mentality. If you really want to rise <laughs> and grind, rise and fucking grind and organize and and be ready for the revolution. Mm-hmm. That, that, um, that rise and grind, that, that has been a... Uh, uh, something that for some reason I've come across a lot. I, uh, I, I recently, uh, got put on quarantine, um, 
and I've been trying to like get into like a a, a workout routine which is gross i hate saying it and i i, I might edit it out but, it's a good uh, idea though honestly yeah. i try I'd, i've tried three times since this covid stuff started to get a regular it's workout routine so going possible especially and i think that this is kind of the worst part about quarantine is like especially in america or maybe not especially in america i say things like that as if i'm existing in other countries at the same time but for me, it seems like I can't look outside and imagine like going to the store without a mask or like fucking going to Disney World. Like I can't. Well, I can't imagine that anyways. But like I can't imagine <laughs> that this shit is going to get better anytime soon. So right. like one thing that would motivate this is going to sound really fucking selfish or not selfish, but this is going to sound gross. One of the main things that might motivate someone to work out is so that other people compliment them or like notice that they're getting healthy and look good. You know what I mean? Right. You can't even get that in America. You can't even get the satisfaction of going to the gym and being the, the douchebag that can lift more weights than the rest of the guys that look like me that walk in there for the first time. You don't even get that satisfaction. You just got to post it on Instagram with a fucking rise and grind caption and get 17 likes for the second time this week. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and be the douchebag in the gym who's just like exercising with headphones in and then keeping to themselves. Like I'm not one of these people who thinks that you need to like, you know, don't be using your, like technology has so many fucking profoundly amazing uses, but there's, it's like the culture that this technology got overlaid on is what's causing us to like turn into these narcissistic little bubble people who never come out of our shells. Like there's plenty of countries in the world where people have smartphones that don't have like the horrible social pathologies of America. Like, <laughs> right. You know, for certain, how many yeah. years of no step on snack did it, does it take before you realize that maybe you're the problem and not your smartphone? <laughs> yeah. And, um, I, I feel like, uh, people's conception of, technology is bad is also oddly like anti-Chinese because like I feel like mm -hmm. to some extent technology in this country is like a, a, a Chinese type under like when people talk about who makes smartphones you know they always go to this idea that it's uh you know Chinese children in a, a, a fucking sweatshop making iPhones which it very well could be. I mean, I'm not sure which country we decided we were going to exploit and throw into child slave labor. But f for some reason, it, it seems like just about everything that is bad uh, kind of translated from uh, being Russian to being Chinese now. Well, it's whatever flavor is... Uh is appropriate for the political discussion that the political establishment in the United States wants to have. It's hard to even know on a day-to-day -day basis who our big enemy is supposed to be because it's like, oh, it's China. Oh, wait, it's Venezuela. Venezuela is the big horrible thing. And we're doing this <laughs> HBO series about it. And we're doing, we got Jim from the, oh, wait, it's not Venezuela anymore. It's Russia. Oh, it's Iran now. It's actually been Iran the whole time. It's like, it's literally just whoever has the balls to stand up to us that week. You know, yeah, and it's the, like and the fact that we are so actively at a kind of standstill conflict with so many countries should say to a lot of people like, hey, maybe there's a reason why we have so many enemies. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it's like we we're literally such a fucking terrible force in the world that there are coalitions of countries who don't even like each other who keep in contact just to circumvent what the United States is doing. It's like <laughs> I imagine like um Oh, let me, I, I couldn't even think of a, enough world leaders, but I just imagine like this group of like, like a group chat of world leaders, just like, you won't even fucking believe what the United States did this week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to imagine that this, that's what it's like, you know, I, I mean, they, they pick up their phone and they, they send each other fucking encrypted text messages or emails or whatever, or not even that, like all the fucking the the u.s officials are always getting in trouble for their fucking emails it's like I, I have to imagine that people in other countries who have more to lose or more to worry about or whatever like would take it a little bit more seriously but isn't that like isn't that the attitude towards america like in the whole oh, rest yes. of the world is even even among our allies even among countries that are friendly to america is like america's this big bully americans are entitled americans are loud americans don't think about anybody else and it's like, that's the national culture that we've been fed, certainly. We're not intrinsically that way, but that's the national culture that we've been fed. And that's definitely the way that our country behaves at the top level. Like, it's oh, basically sure. U.S. national policy to try and take over as much shit as humanly possible. I, I do think that it's funny when people uh, pose the question, like, how could America allow someone like Donald Trump to become president as if Donald Trump is not the physical embodiment of America? I know, right? It's almost like, it's it's like, how couldn't he have become president? Like, when we all saw that he was running for 2016, everybody didn't take him seriously. Everybody was joking about him, but it's like, everybody was talking about him. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. He knows that that's how it works, you know? Yeah, isn't it true that to some extent his presidential run was essentially so he could boost? Didn't he want to do like a Trump TV news channel? Yeah, I think he had aspirations to either have a show or an entire network that was like a further right and more game showified Fox News. And then to everybody's surprise, including his own, he won the presidency <laughs> because it turns out that's what Americans want. They don't want a president. They want the guy from The Apprentice to sit in a chair and eat McDonald's and say snarky things on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I was talking about this on a, a, a recent podcast that I did. Um where I said that, imagine how much more into politics Americans would be. And I'm sure I'm not the first one to make this joke, but if it was like American Idol, like how involved American people would be in politics. And it would only result in yet another version of Donald Trump becoming elected because he truly is like the common American's wet dream of like <laughs> what what the the prom king is. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like democracy is nothing without political education. If you don't mm -hmm. give people a political education, then they're just going to be able to be swayed by whoever the most convincing con man up on that stage is. And that's the thing. I think that's like really the, the building block of socialism is like, do you have a democracy in which people are given a political education sufficient enough to make efficient use of that democracy? And, you know, do I know if that's the case in China or not? No, I absolutely do not know. But would I be willing to wager that it's much more likely to be the case in China than it is in the United States? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Unquestionably, yes. 
Yeah. And I think, again, that kind of because of most of my experience, uh, like revolving around politics is online. I think it's kind of a frustrating thing that, you know, you and I and just about everyone else uh, know so little about China because it's such a frequently talked about and very divisive uh, conversation. Um, so it, it it definitely is something that I want to kind of continue looking into. Um, but something that just popped up on my newsfeed because I have my laptop open right now. Um, apparently, in the time since we started recording... Um, Trump's administration is actively talking about selling s- seven, seven, oh, seven large packages of weapons to Taiwan, including missiles that would allow Taiwanese jets to hit Chinese targets in the event of a conflict, according to this article. Jesus Christ. I mean, it's so, it's, it's fucking, uh, Cuban missile crisis and all it's cold war part two, you know, that's Mm -hmm. literally what Trump wants. And he doesn't even care about China. That's the other thing. He just cares about getting reelected. Donald Trump does not give a fucking shit what China does because he's not going to, he, and he knows this, he's not going to fucking live long enough to see the fruits of the endeavors of the CCP. Like he could throw it all away and give the CCP everything they want at the end of the day. And it would make no fucking difference to him as long as he got everything he wanted on the way up to that point. Which I think is kind so I, I didn't want to really make this claim because there's really no evidence to make this claim, but it is my, these are my favorite kinds of claims. Yeah, (laughs) it is. It is my understanding and kind of my analysis of what's going to happen that if, well, even if he does get reelected, I think Trump will pivot last minute and just like put on a fucking president G hat and put up, you know, a hundred more Trump hotels in Beijing and all over China, because I really do think that this is kind of Trump, Trump, and this is commonly talked about on your show as well, but Trump's main thing is like, he just doesn't want to be a loser. And I think President Xi and China were too big of uh, uh, an enemy in American Mm -hmm. politics before, uh, Trump became president that he couldn't ignore them. Like, cause if it were up to Trump, I feel like he would be actively having, uh, a McMuffin with president Xi and, uh, Putin just about every morning after their, uh, hot shower together. Well, he doesn't care. He just likes people who wield power, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's why he loves Kim Jong-un because and, he uh, goes over the there Crown and- Prince. Yeah, because it's because he goes over to North Korea and he's like, "Wow, everybody in this country loves this guy. He's a big celebrity," and he has no idea that it's because like the North <laughs> Korean government is taking care of their actually taking care of their people and stuff. But he's just like, "Wow, this guy wields all this power and he's so cool." And then all of his like handlers are telling him like, "You know, this guy's an evil dictator and stuff, right?" And they're lying to him, but Trump doesn't care. He's like, "Oh, evil dictator. That sounds cool. I want to do evil dictator stuff." And so he ends up having like this weirdly like friendly but also antagonistic relationship and it's because he doesn't fucking stand for anything uh, right if it, it, if it if it became popular like if he wins re-election he's gonna go from saying the chinese government is committing atrocities that's bad to we should copy the chinese government's fake atrocities that we're pretending that they're doing right like, and that's that always gonna be what it is we're not also doing yeah um did you uh speaking of what did you see the 
the hysterectomies thing with ice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I that's, it's like, that's, it's basically a genocide, right? Like yeah. we're, we're doing a genocide or a xenocide or, you know, whatever, whatever else you want to fucking call it. And yeah, we're in no position to critique anybody, especially China on spurious claims of Uyghur re-education where they're allowed to go home at the end of the day. They're not even detained in like a cell or anything like we're doing. And also like there's, there is a serious like terrorism problem in Western China that the Chinese government is trying to deal with. And it seems like if any country in the world should be sympathetic to trying to deal (laughs) with a terrorism problem, it would be us. But, you know, everything gets inverted when, when you start talking about China. Every up is down and good is bad because it's the only way to paint them as this big fucking evil empire. And, like, are there bureaucratic oversights? Are some Uyghurs being mishandled in the CCP machinery? Maybe. <laughs> I don't probably, know. Probably. I mean, just based solely on numbers, that seems probable. Yeah. But like, I mean, while yeah. we're waging a full-scale genocide in this country on people who are just trying to immigrate here, like what we don't have a leg to stand on in the international discussion of human rights. But we do, of course, because we're on the council in the NATO assembly or whatever fucking subcommittee bullshit that we designed. Right. And it, it, it again, ties right back into my the earlier point of everything that the U.S., like, Whatever bad thing the U.S. hates right now is literally just a mirror image of what they are actively doing themselves. And so I feel like that's why – and uh, again, I, I'm i not going to make a, a statement one way or another, but I feel like that's why I am a bit wary of just about everything kind of very oddly politicized that I read about China because it seems that – if if it were to be the case, this would be exactly the country and how the United States would go about propagandizing against China if we yeah. were. You know what I mean? Cause this, well, and we are. This, I mean, that's just yeah. it. Like All of these spurious claims can either be traced back to a couple of think tank organizations, or in a lot of cases, they can be traced directly back to Adrian Zenz, who is like a fundamental evangelical Christian who feels yep. compelled by God to take down the CCP and uh, is like a senior research partner at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, which was founded by the U.S. government and is funded by the U.S. government. Like, that's the other thing. Like, people want to be like, oh, these other countries. Oh, in China, Marxism is their religion. Oh, in in Syria, everybody's Muslim, and that means they want to do jihad. It's like the people in power in the United States, their ear is constantly taken like they, they they always have an ear to the ground for what the fundamental evangelical Christians want to do. It's oh, it's yeah. why we can support Israel in the most anti-Semitic way possible, and it's why we constantly are trying to interfere all over the Middle East because it makes people in churches in you know flyover states really really happy. Yep, and those are the fucking people that vote, and not that anyone's vote really counts at the end of the day, but the fact that they can continue, because if all of a sudden everybody in the Midwest went, nah, I don't think I'm going to vote this year, you'd, you'd get a huge notice that, like, wait a minute, things still seem to work and nobody really voted. Wait a minute, wait a minute, was it, was it that none of us were actually actively uh, involved in this election process? 
Um, yeah. So they they kind of to some extent love the the evangelical because it keeps the the lie of a democracy that exists in the United States alive. Um, but I I don't know where we're at time wise. What do you have? Pretty I close did, to an hour. Okay. Um, so I guess we could kind of, we don't have to wrap it up. I don't know how long you want to record for. I don't know if you had anything that you had going on or anything like that. Um, uh, not really. I, just, I, I could probably go for like another, you know, 10 minutes or so, something like alrighty. that. Okay. So, um, I know that you said you, uh, again, before we talked, we both kind of said that we don't have a whole lot of information, but, um, you mentioned, uh, Mao earlier in a, in a, in a way that made it seem like you have probably a bit more information than myself. So I was ran, I was recently having a conversation with a friend of mine. We both kind of said that we don't know much about Maoism. Um, and I'm not going to ask you explain Mao and Maoism, but, um, do you know (laughs) of any, any good, you know, maybe resources or, uh, places to look to kind of learn about it? Because I feel like understanding, U.S.-China relations, I also have to understand Chinese history, and obviously a huge part of Chinese history is Mao, Mao Zedong. Absolutely. Well, Maoism as a distinct uh, communist tendency actually comes from the Communist Party of Peru, and it's hmm. much more recent than the uh, communist revolution in China. I'm not an expert on this kind of stuff, but those are the details that I know. Um that's interesting. I didn't know that. It's it's very strange. It's 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 it is. it's <laughs> um there were some theorists in I think in Peru who kind of like took a particular interest in Mao and decided to systematize his thought. But there's also something called Mao Zedong thought which gets a lot of hate and I don't know a lot about I don't know a ton about the ins and outs of Maoism, but the history of China, you know, revolution-wise, is really interesting. It's still to this day considered a Marxist-Leninist state. Uh, they practice something that they call socialism with Chinese characteristics. Yeah, that's I what know- I'm reading right now, that that Wikipedia description of socialism <laughs> with Chinese <laughs> yeah. characteristics. <laughs> yeah, and there's a, I think the current um, president of China, Xi Jinping, wrote a book called something very dry. It's like the principles of governance in socialist China or something like that. Um, and a couple of people in the BP Bledis discord were reading it and said that it was very interesting, but also like reads like a textbook. So if you have the patience for that kind of thing, um, you can do that. I mean, Mao himself was very interesting. Um, he was a revolutionary who I think he lost a couple of his uh, wives during the revolution. They, 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 they died either doing revolutionary. I, I don't know a ton of the details, um, but uh, yeah, that's China <laughs> is even to this day. I mean, they ha- they're the biggest socialist nation in the world. And I think a few years ago, president G said that they were going to be reorienting 
um, their governance style to get more in line with their Marxist roots, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I uh, I did that article popped up, but it was it some of the articles that I was reading. Again, I'm fairly new to all of this, so some of the articles that I was reading kind of were very involved. But I did see an article about uh, President Xi kind of saying that he would like to start shifting things more towards a a Marxist. Um, structure because of the history of China. But I again, didn't yeah, I didn't read much into that because again it was very involved. Um, well, and you get like this history of like the different leaders and their thought like a lot of people don't like uh Deng Xiaoping mm-hmm. uh and you know there's a lot of talk about like Dangists believe the most insane things and stuff on Twitter. I don't know the ins and outs of all that, but um I'll tell you that present day China seems like it's doing and a fairly honest job of trying to pursue socialism, at least to a, a dumb American outsider like myself, maybe not as good <laughs> as a place like uh, Vietnam or Cuba, but also doing it on a much grander scale than either of those countries can. So, Right, certainly. And also, um, it, it's been kind of pointed out that this is the, the new Cold War, and I thought that that was uh, a, a little bit of an odd analogy, simply just because like something like China versus the United States does not quite measure up to the USSR versus the United States in you know kind of the the global economy uh, ties that the USSR had at the time of the Cold right. War and stuff like that. But I, well, I do. Uh, that's the thing is like the the U.S. wants this conflict. Like the the U.S. was ready to have a Cold War with Russia, <laughs> with present yeah. day capitalist Russia. So we don't care <laughs> if if it has like actual economic implications. And the other thing is you have to remember who's at the helm. Like Donald Trump is scary for a lot of reasons, but one thing that makes him scary and also makes him in some ways much less scary is that he's kind of just a dumb random guy. And he's not like a cold, calculating political mastermind. Like if we had elected Hillary Clinton, all of like the coup in Venezuela might have worked, you know, destabilizing China would have would have taken a totally different form and might have worked. Yeah. And I think I think it was your guys's pod who made made the claim that like it was you guys are chapel, but um, made the claim that like uh, Trump is only doing this as theater like Trump himself he is very very much avoidant of true conflict because again to his core all he wants to do is just show that he's not a loser and if we were to go to an actual like fully functional you know trade war with China we very well could lose just simply because Trump is a bumbling idiot who just doesn't want to look like a loser yeah, well, and I mean, that's the, like the fucking Chinese administration is already like league smarter than we are, just in oh. terms of like being competent at their jobs and also actually having an interest in doing the jobs they pretend to do. Like China, China is so fucking good at outmaneuvering us. Like, sure, we're a bigger economic power. We have military bases all over the fucking place, but I have there's no doubt in my mind that the CCP like studies are you know they study our playbook they probably have a much closer eye on us than we have on them even no matter how many fucking bumbling ass cia and fbi agents we send over there right and i think again to your your point about um 
how China is, you know, very methodical and actually has people doing the jobs that they want. I think when you look at the Chinese government, one thing that I myself can say is that it seems from reading a lot of articles from a lot of high ranking uh, CCP government officials that at least to some extent, the the words that they say about caring about, you know, Chinese citizens and stuff like that and denouncing the United States measures up to their actions taken in government much, much more often than in the United States. So to say for anything, I guess you could say that the CCP's government officials in a extremely general generalized statement uh, actively take steps to improve the situation of their citizens. So, I mean, yeah. And yeah. I mean, the situation in the world more broadly too. One of the biggest things is like, they are actually, they exceeded their climate change expectations I did see that. Yep. Yep. in industry. Like they set a goal and then they beat it and the U S can't even commit too. to the fucking Kyoto agreements. Yeah, and the United States is wrought with a lot of obvious uh, overtones of cultural discrepancies. But at the same time, you'd think at least so that we don't all just fucking burn to death like Oregon is right now. The government officials would at least be like, all right, maybe we won't just, you know, um, smoke a a carton of cigarettes next to 30,000 barrels of oil in our free time. Maybe we'll cut it down to 20,000. it's just ridiculous that we can't even, like you said, get get to some kind of agreement to even moderately tamp down our our climate uh, destruction each and every year. No, we only know growth in this country. It's our it's our prime directive: grow or die. Yeah. But it's not even like um, true growth because I mean, and as I'm oh no, it's sure, cancerous just about, growth. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sure as everybody knows that is listening to this, like not only is the, the growth that the United States has, uh, explicitly for one class and one class only, but it is also explicitly for kind of, and I'll use this term, but it's, it's going to sound wrong, but like one world order, like American exceptionalist shit, like all this growth is explicitly to spread the name of America as it actively and, uh, constantly destroys like the very ground that it, it it wants to rule over um yeah absolutely absolutely i mean if america was given its way and absolute dominion over all the resources and peoples of the planet we would it would be the most ruinous thing that could possibly happen <laughs> it, <laughs> it would be the most pyrrhic victory of all time and yet you'd think that like, you know, half or I should say probably more than half this country thinks that that would be the best thing to ever happen to the world. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Just real quick before we kind of close up here. Um, one of the things that I found really, really cool, like genuinely cool about the articles that I read was the uh, the the belt. What was it called? The Belt Road Initiative Belt. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so um yeah, so it's you know self-described as the new silk road, but in the article that I read it kind of only talked about like the development and the council of it and kind of what the you know idea behind it was. But now this is something that I obviously would think would tie China in a way that the United States can't afford to the global economy. Would you agree? 
Yeah, definitely. And I think you see some criticisms of the way China has been handling this. And the question is, are they luring in developing countries into debt traps? That remains to be seen. I don't know enough about China or the way that they're going about this to know if that's true or not. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, the... The way that they're working with these other countries and the way that they've managed to have warm diplomatic ties with uh, a, such a diverse group of developing states in a way that the United States could never dream of and do it without putting soldiers there. You know, some of these countries even ask for China to put soldiers there. And it's, you know, people will dispute, well, did they really ask or did China tell them to ask them to put soldiers? I don't know. But, um, <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll ask them to put soldiers there because they're worried that U.S. allied states nearby will come in and pull some shit like we keep trying to do with Colombia and Venezuela. Uh, mm-hmm. And rightly so. So, you know, I think it's really impressive. And I think that the amount of international goodwill China has with other countries on an economic level is really going to serve them well in the next 20 years, you know, in a, in a way of planning for the future that the United States could never dream of with our shock and awe, jackboots on the ground approach. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, I think along with that kind of also the fact that China is, not only successful, but also continuing its efforts to build something like the Belt and Road Initiative and many other things that they're doing in the global economy sphere kind of shows their, I don't want to say dedication to the development towards socialism, but it definitely seems like the steps that a a state such as China in the world that exists now would need to take in order to ensure the, you know, the budget capabilities to actually exist as a socialist country with such a massive population. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I really hope that we continue to see better and better things out of China. I think that China, the China that I've seen since Xi announced that they were going to take a more Marxist turn has been really encouraging to me overall. Uh, but that could also have to do with the fact that that's also the period of time in which uh, my socialist education was kind of uh, brought from a, a, a molehill to something a little bit more significant. So it'd be hard for me to to tell which factor is more at play there. Right. And again, with, you know, the, the lack of what we could call trustworthy sources uh, definitely doesn't help anybody's understanding of what's going on there. No. Uh, and, and to like cycle back around to what something I said at the beginning of the conversation, you know, it's just like when you're arguing about North Korea, like North Korea doesn't want Americans to know what's going on in North Korea because that means the American government knows what's going on in North Korea and they're going to try to fuck with it. So an unfortunate side effect of that is that it's very difficult for American leftists to get reliable information on what goes on inside of socialist countries that need to hide their shit from the CIA and the FBI. And that's, that's all there is to it. Yeah. And I think, um, I think, well, it, my opinion is that America has a solid three years left before we're shot. Um, so I'm hoping that it, at least at some point in my life, I'll be able to understand China and places like North Korea as well for what they are and be able to kind of formulate uh, a, my own understanding of them. Because, it, like we said, it's such a 
common topic in a lot of leftist spheres online, um, really, what's happening in these places. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I guess that's the end of the show. If you are still listening, I appreciate you very much. Um, This, again, was John from Beep Beep Lettuce. Thanks for coming on again. This was awesome, and I am so very thankful that you came on. Uh, Would you like to go ahead and plug yourself real quick? Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, my name is John Paul Zigterman. I'm a co-host of Beep Beep Lettuce. I'm also a co-host of a show I started recently with my friend Lena called Work Stoppage, where we exclusively cover uh, labor-related issues, and then we also do a meme review at the end. I stream sometimes on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Beep Beep Lettuce Pod, mostly Mario Kart Club on Saturdays. Uh, And you can follow me on Twitter at Facebook Villain. I think that's it. Nice, nice. I uh, I actually didn't know about your new show. What was that called again? Oh, it's called Work Stoppage. Yeah, we well, I think we're we just released our thirteenth episode uh, yesterday. Sweet. So that's is that available everywhere that Beep Beep is as well? Yeah, that should be available on your Spotify, your Podbean, your Stitcher, your Google Play Music, all that stuff. Okay, cool. I'll definitely be. That'll be what I do before. I'll probably. Uh, listen to a couple episodes so thanks again for coming on john i really enjoyed it i hope you did too uh to those of you who were expecting any kind of hard line opinion on china you listen to the the wrong podcast because <laughs> i do barely any research so i'm not gonna actually give out an opinion but uh have a good night uh if you don't already follow me on facebook twitter instagram and tiktok sadly until that is no longer available uh and yeah uh, i usually i usually send them off with uh something fun and wacky to do uh so why why don't you one time it was piss on a cop car uh one time it was tell me their favorite fruit so what's one thing that the two viewers that this show will get could do uh, you can spray paint the hammer and sickle or anarchist uh, circle A, your choice, on any golf course of your choosing. Nice. And I'm sure they're just about anywhere you live in America, there's plenty of those to do that on. So everybody have a good one. Thanks again, John. Have a fantastic night and uh, we'll see you next time.